Our scripture lesson this morning, friends, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Sorry, I forgot to mark it ahead of time, but luckily I do know where this one is. <laughs> I invite you now, friends, to hear these words from Luke. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and living in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angel carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham from far away. With Lazarus by his side, he called to him saying, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send him to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this place. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But he is now comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been made, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone come here from there. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets to listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Father Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. Today's scripture lesson, friends, is what is known in the Bible as a parable. That is, it's a story that Jesus is telling Parables are often described as being moral or spiritual lessons, illustrations. And this one is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which isn't super creative, but it tells you what it's about. Um, it's also known as the parable of the rich fool. This one is probably one of the more morbid parables. It's a difficult story. It's the parable of this wealthy, unnamed man who in his lifetime just lives in incredible, luxurious ways. He displays his wealth with beautiful clothes and lavish feasts. We know that he's in a gated-in community <laughs> because the scripture tells us that Lazarus lays at the gate outside of his home. He's living happily with every pleasure one could imagine. And on the flip side of that, we have Lazarus. And I should say, this is not the same Lazarus who later gets raised from the dead. Different Lazarus, very popular name for some reason. <laughs> and Lazarus is hungry. He's covered in sores. Dogs lick at him. 
He's suffering, laying at the gate of this unmanned, unnamed rich man's home. But the man never offers a kindness to Lazarus. The scripture tells us Lazarus is like so desperate for something that he would eat the crumbs of this man's table and this man doesn't even offer him that. Eventually they both die and in the words of Hamilton, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints, it just takes and it takes and it takes. After his death, after both of their deaths, they are carried away to two different places. The scripture tells us that Lazarus is carried to an honored place, that he sits beside Abraham, God's friend and the father of Israel. And in contrast to that, the rich man finds himself in Hades, a place of torment and eternal punishment. A conversation ensues between the rich man and Father Abraham, and the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus into Hades to ease his pain, and Abraham tells him no, that that can't be done. In their lifetimes, Lazarus suffered. He was a victim of many bad things, and we don't know what those things are, but it led him to be someone lying in the street at the gates of a man's house. In his lifetime, this unnamed rich man experienced a lot of good. He lived lavishly. He wore fine clothes. He had great feasts. And now in death, he's found himself also lying in need while Lazarus sits in the good place. The rich man, realizing there's no hope for him, asks if maybe Lazarus can go let his brothers know that they also need to like shift what they're doing if they don't want to end up here. And Lazarus doesn't go again. Again, Abraham tells him no. Abraham tells him if you'd listened, you wouldn't be here. And then Abraham tells him, surely if Moses couldn't convince them, if all these scriptures, if the world itself, if guilt can't convince you to do good things, rising someone from the dead also isn't going to do it for them. When we read this story straight off the bat, I think it's a difficult story because we read it and our initial reaction perhaps is that if you are a person who's rich or if you're a person who doesn't help everyone you see in need, then you're just bound for hell. Because that's what we assume is happening in this story, right? This rich guy didn't help someone and now he's sitting in hell. And I think there's more to this story than that if we really dig into it and don't take it at its face value. The first and foremost, well, first and foremost, um, I wanna point out that the place that's named in this story is in fact not hell. Um, it's called Hades. And some of you are going, isn't that the same thing? I watched Hercules, Hades the ruler of the underworld. <laughs> I realize this seems really minute, but like, hear me out on this. Let me do my biblical nerd thing that I do. 
In today's world, most people understand this story to be about hell. It's a place where you're going to eternally burn for your sins. It's the place of punishment for the unsaved. It's a place where you will suffer forever in pain. It's a place where maybe some of us have been told we're going to end up for doing something, right? It's a scary place that people get threatened with. And the problem is Jesus isn't actually speaking about hell in this passage. Sometimes translations translate the word to hell, but Hades is actually a closer translation. It's the closest English word we have to the original Greek word Jesus uses. And that word is Gehenna. And Gehenna is a different place altogether. The behavior and wrongdoings in the that happen in this story are not the rich man on the highway to hell. He's on the highway to Gehenna, which is not nearly as catchy um, <laughs> or fun. It's helpful to know this though, friends. What is Hades? What is Gehenna? It's not hell. And if you're wondering why this matters, it does matter. And I promise we're gonna get there together. But first we're gonna nerd out about Gehenna. So are you excited? Yeah, biblical history. <laughs> Gehenna, friends, is an actual place. It was a literal real place in ancient Jewish times. We actually find it mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. It's mentioned in the Midrash. It's mentioned in Jewish commentaries about the Old Testament. Gehenna was originally a valley in the southwest area of Jerusalem where children were burned as sacrifices to the Ammonite god Moloch. This practice was carried out by Israelites and by others during the reign of King Solomon in the 10th century BC and King Manesh in the 7th century BC. And it continued all the way up until the Roman, until the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. Gehenna is a real place. And it's not just any real place, it's a place of deep torment. It's a place where people, specifically children, were burnt alive as sacrifices. Gehenna, after this period of time where this was done, was made actually into a garbage disposal center to discourage a reintroduction of such sacrifices. It's quite literally a place where bodies lied in torment. In Judaism, this idea was adopted and Gehenna is called the realm in which people atone of their sins. Talmudic Jews, that is Jewish sages, reject the idea that Gehenna is a place you go permanently. In fact, it doesn't happen at all. They've given it a lot of thought and they think that Gehenna can't be permanent. They say that according to the Bible, Dust returns to earth as it was, while the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so they've come to the conclusion that this punishment in Gehenna, if you land there, can't be eternal. That the spirit has to return to its maker. 
I think we can read this and we see where perhaps this idea of Gehenna, this place which existed long before Christians started thinking about a theology of hell, influence our understanding of hell and eternal punishment. I took a class in divinity school just about the history of the theology of hell, which is about as exciting as it sounds. And what I learned in that is that we can't agree on anything. We don't actually know what hell is like. We don't actually know exactly how you get there and who goes where. There's no definite around it. But ideas like Gehenna have existed long before we started asking these questions. And from the beginning of time, there's been this idea that there is a separation. In fact, what I learned in my Theology of Hell class is that the best description of hell is just being separated from God. That that's the worst torment that can happen, is to have to exist in a place where God is not. Gehenna is that too, friends. It's a separation. There's a chasm between Gehenna, between Hades, and where God is sitting. That is the place where this rich man lies. It's not this permanent fire or damnation. It's not what we think of as hell. And we still can't ignore the fact that this man, who is unnamed, is still living separate from God in the afterlife. As nice as it is that it's not the permanent hell that most of us find really scary, it's still not great. For at least the time being, this man finds himself separate from God and from Abraham and from Lazarus. And what do we make of that? This rich man has descended to suffering while Lazarus gets promoted from plain to blessedness. And is this like a warning against wealth? Does that mean I should never wear linen? Does that mean that I can't throw fancy feasts? Does that mean we're all bound for Gehenna because we're going to go pig out after this? <laughs> what does this mean? This is, in fact, one parable in a long list of them. It's like Luke's rant of parables about wealth and poverty. This parable immediately follows the parable of the widow's coin, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the dishonest manager's handling of debts, which is really not catchy. We just walked into the middle of Luke's very long rant about money and wealth and power. And truthfully, they're all probably meant to be read together in a series because they all inform us as to what, what's trying to be said about wealth and power and heaven and whatever afterlife there is. The lesson here, friends, is not necessarily that poverty is good and leads to being blessed and that wealth is bad and leads to torment. There's something deeper happening. And what that is lies in the behavior of the rich man. In life, this man lives lavishly with no regard for other people. He likely saw Lazarus every single day. He likely saw this man laying outside of his gate, covered in sores, hungry to just eat the crumbs at his table, not even bothering to ask for a seat, just to ask for the leftovers that you throw out, for the smallest 
what I wouldn't even call a kindness. And this rich man doesn't do it. He lives lavishly and he ignores the suffering around him. In death, he seems to have not changed at all because this formerly rich man, as he sits in Gehenna, sees Abraham sitting above him with Lazarus and Lazarus is maybe looking all comfy. He's cleaned up a little bit. Maybe his sores have healed. And he shouts to Abraham with, a seer, with this sense of familiarity and this sense of bossiness. Like he tells Abraham what to do. And that's a lot of entitlement happening and the fact that you just got here and you're already trying to run the show. He refers to him as Father Abraham and he asks that Abraham demonstrates mercy by sending Lazarus out of his comfortable place and down into Gehenna to dip his finger in water and place it in his mouth to cool his tongue and alleviate his suffering. In death, just as in life, this man treats Lazarus as someone who's subordinate to him, who's a slave, who's meant to serve him. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. He's wound up in the place you don't want to wind up for behaving this way and he's there and he's still doing it. He's like a teenager who didn't learn their lesson when you sent them to their room. He's just still doing the very thing that got him where he is. Abraham reminds him that in life he received good things and Lazarus didn't. And now the reverse is true. This man is in agony and Lazarus lies in comfort. Poor people are not evil. In the eyes of this rich man, they are. In the eyes of this rich man, they are eternally lesser, even in the afterlife. But the truth of the kingdom of God is that poverty and disease and evil are things that can be alleviated. They're human creations. They're things that the rich man could have done something about and instead he just watched it. What humans create, humans can fix if we so desire to. In life, this man didn't do anything to alleviate the suffering of those around him. And in death, he expects this man this man who lived in nothing but suffering to give up the comfort he's been granted to come down and alleviate his suffering. He expects this man who's finally gotten a piece of luxury to be ordered to give it all up and to go sit in the midst of fire pouring water into another person's mouth. He's not concerned about this man's discomfort. He's not concerned about the fact that this man might be sitting in fire not having water himself. He just wants his own discomfort alleviated. He's entitled to that and this man isn't. Abraham tells him that a chasm separates them. There's nothing that can be done. And so the, the rich man begs to send him, him, to warn his five brothers that they do not also end up in Hades. In the real translation, the rich man never 
calls Lazarus by his name. He only ever refers to him as him. And sometimes when we're reading scripture, it looks a little different, and that's so we don't get super confused. While the rich man is the unnamed one in this story, and it's really obnoxious because I would love if he had a name that sounded really, really annoying. Um, I don't know a really good, like, annoying rich man name, but I feel like it's something like Worthington or like a Victorian villain. Um, he doesn't have a name in the story. Lazarus does. And in life, he chooses not to use Lazarus's name. He chooses not to bother to learn Lazarus's name. In death, he still refuses to call Lazarus by his name to acknowledge him as a person. Instead, he only ever refers to him as him. And he asks Father Abraham if he will send him to warn his brothers so that they don't also end up in the same place that he's in. He refuses to see Lazarus. He refuses to give him any kindness. He refuses to know his name or call him by it. But he still expects Lazarus to be his saving grace. He expects Lazarus to do the work of taking care of him, of serving him, and then saving his whole family so they don't end up having a giant family reunion in Gehenna. Abraham responds with truth, which is that if they didn't listen to the prophets, if they aren't inclined to do justice, if they haven't heard the words from Deuteronomy which say to perform justice for orphans and widows, to love strangers, to provide food and clothing, to do love and kindness, if they haven't heard those words and been moved by them, there is no hope. A man could be raised from the dead and it would not matter. If they haven't bothered to see someone like Lazarus as someone worthy of dignity and kindness, they won't. While the themes of this scripture, friends, are wealth and poverty, the deeper theme and the lesson is one first and foremost in dignity and kindness. The scripture asks us the questions, who are we if we are people who refuse to have our comfort disrupted in order to maintain the dignity and well-being of another? Who are we if we refuse to offer friendship and a place at the table to those who are in need? Who are we if only giving people the crumbs of the table is considered kindness? Who are we if people lying outside of the gates where we are are in pain and in hunger and in thirsting and suffering and we do nothing except look at them every single day? Refusing to learn their story, refusing to even bother to learn their name? Who are we when we only show any interest in these people when it will benefit us? And even when we show interest in them, it's so that they can further serve us, right? This man pays no attention to Lazarus until he needs him. And then all of a sudden, hey, you'll want to come put your finger in my mouth? <laughs> Who are we if we're these types of people? 
who only acknowledge the existence of another person when they can do something for us. This story, this parable is one which warns us. It warns us against ignoring others. It warns us against being so wrapped up in our comfort and our coziness that we don't hear the words of God. It warns us against being a people who are obsessed with being the best, being a people who are happy to never do justice or love, to offer help or kindness. I beg to say, I think it even warns us to be a people who think crumbs are enough. Because Lazarus gets to heaven and he's got a whole seat next to like the best guy there. Except Jesus, arguably. <laughs> but like, he's got a seat next to Abraham and he's pretty important. The scripture is one that reminds us that wealth, that poverty, that evils of the world are human made, not God made. And if we're working to alleviate them, we're doing God's work. And if we're not working to alleviate them, then we're not. It's that straightforward. And that doesn't mean every time you go out and you see someone hurting, you have to absolutely do something. Because that's just not realistic. We're gonna fail at that, friends. It does mean that every time you encounter another person, you have the ability to give them dignity, to acknowledge them, to ask their name, to see them. And that is the greatest joy because that's what Jesus does for us consistently in the gospels. He sees people, he learns their name, he touches them, he heals them, he eats with them, he gives them a meal and breaks bread for them. Thanks be to God. At this time, friends, I'd like to invite you to join me in our communion feast, which is found on page 12 in your hymnal. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sins before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray, through Jesus' obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.